Welcome to the Career Zone podcast, where each episode we spend some time focusing on something that's on students' minds right now. I'm your host, Rachel, employability and careers consultant with the University of Exeter. You can catch up on all of our episodes by doing all of those subscribing and following things. We're on Spotify and iTunes. So thanks so much, Emma, for joining us this morning. It's really nice to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, I I wondered if we could get started by nice sort of introductory question. Could you tell us a little bit about your current role? Well, I've been a barrister since 2008 and I moved to my current chambers in 2019. So different set from where I trained. And I specialise in public law, inquests and public inquiries. Uh, But I also do a range of civil work, much of which involves questions relating to human rights. So I'm currently part of the Council to the Inquiry team on the Post Office Horizon IT public inquiry, which is looking into the circumstances in which over 700 sub-postmasters were privately prosecuted by the Post Office, many of those being sentenced to custodial sentences following bugs and errors in the IT system, which was responsible for the accounting in the post office branches. And so it's being described really as a a very, very significant miscarriage of justice. um, Mm. And the inquiry is looking into that. And then, you know, on the, I suppose, to give another example, last week I was doing a civil jury trial, um, which was a challenge to the police's arrest of a man who was alleged to have harassed and domestically abused his ex-partner. So the work I do tends to be really interesting in subject matter. Mm-hmm. And I hope that gives a bit of a flavour of uh, the sort of work that I do. Yeah, it does definitely. And it sounds like you have a really varied and interesting role. I think talking to you today is going to be really useful for our students who are considering possibly pursuing the route of barrister in the future. So, yeah, definitely really interesting. And of course, your journey started at Exeter. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, sort of how you came to be working as a barrister starting with sort of your time at at university at Exeter? Well, um, when I was 18, I definitely didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I chose a degree that I found really interesting. So I did a politics degree at Exeter. And as my degree went on, I thought more and more about how I could turn my studies and skills into a job and what that job might look like. And so I thought about jobs that shape society those were the that was where Mm. I think was going Um, and I was thinking about journalism Uh, I was thinking about diplomacy because I was studying politics with quite a heavy focus on international politics and it was really top of my list the idea of becoming the next Kate Aidy who um, I expect most of your students will be too young to remember but Kate Aidy was a a legendary female war correspondent um, who went into war zones at a time when that was a very unusual thing for women to be doing so I, I was all set on the idea of that and then I met a female barrister at an event in London and she told me all about her job and it sounded fascinating And one of the interesting things that she explained to me about being a barrister is that the cases we're involved in do truly shape the way that society deals with complex issues and competing rights and responsibilities. So we're in a common law system, as your law students will know, 
and the judgments given by judges do incrementally change the law and the way we should interpret legislation, for example. And so she explained that really well to me, and I was sold completely on the idea. And so it wasn't even, oh, well, maybe I'll do law. It was, I really want to be a barrister, and I want to be in court doing the advocacy on the kind of cases that really matter in terms of society. So it sounds like it was almost... um... A sort of light bulb, light bulb moment. You know that meeting with that particular barrister, and it really kind of inspired you on your journey. Which, of course, some of our students will be thinking about some of the steps to becoming a barrister. And of course, one of the key elements is successfully securing pupillage. Of course. So, I yeah, I, I wondered if you could sort of share some insight on, on your journey with securing pupillage. And maybe sort of how you felt about the process at the time, looking back, and maybe some of your tips about how best to sort of approach, I guess, the search for pupillage, the the application and interview process. Well, for me, because I did a graduate entry law degree, which meant two years study of the degree rather than three after my politics degree, um, I had slightly less time than most law students who do an undergraduate degree have to think about uh, my applications for pupillage and and to sort of build up that CV time but actually you know that that was enough time and the I suppose my experience was quite early on trying to get experience in sets of chambers and so from the very as soon as I really knew I wanted to be doing law and wanted to become a barrister actually even in my final year doing politics I got experience in the summer doing mini pupillages so that is really where, where you go for a few days to a set of chambers. Some mini pupillages are assessed and there's a formal application process to get onto mini pupillage. And some are not assessed and they're more informal experience. But it varies from chambers to chambers what they offer in terms of how you gain experience of their set of chambers. But it's really, really helpful in understanding what the job actually involves and what it really looks like on a day-to-day basis. And because the study of law is quite abstract. And and so you may think a subject's really interesting when you're studying it, but in seeing what the work looks like as a barrister doing that area of law can be quite different. So for me, my experience of doing those mini pupillages really helped me to focus on which types of chambers I might be interested in and what type of areas of law I was interested in. So that was something that I did quite early on. And then I was thinking about, you know, pupillage applications from that early stage and asking myself what I needed to do to make myself more saleable to a set of chambers. So I did a lot of mooting, uh, which your law students will be very familiar with, essentially, you know, sort of mock cases where you really are playing the role of a barrister on a case, often in Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court. And, And so it's really having a go at doing the job. And I did some debating as well and quite a lot of volunteering. So I did my best to gain experience, fill my CV with all the things that showed I was really interested in being a barrister and would give me the knowledge I needed to explain why I wanted to do the job. I then applied for pupillage through, there's a central system, which is now called, I I think it's either the portal or the gateway. It's changed its name several times now since I I was applying, but it's still a central process. So you do an application and you can choose a number of chambers to apply to. So I did that exercise and I got a number of interviews and I was very fortunate and um, secured pupillage on that first round of applications. But that's not actually terribly common. A lot of people 
do have to apply more than once to get pupillage mm -hmm. and so it does require an element of resilience in terms of you know understanding that and statistically um, a lot of people don't get it first time if that doesn't mean they're not going to get it it just means you know they haven't got it that time so the experience of doing the interviews in that first round can be really helpful for future applications and things like that so for me that was the path you know I I did they I did my interviews I got an offer of pupillage I did the bar course and then I started pupillage um, after that and I suppose sort of building on what I did and um, the you know, the first thing to do is as early as possible try and get some experience real life experience seeing what barristers do a lot of sets of chambers have changed the way they offer mini pupillages since covid so there was a real break in the ability of chambers to offer mini pupillages so some now do online mini pupillages or sort mm -hmm. of drop in sessions where you can learn more about a set of chambers and ask questions and meet people which is quite different from the old-fashioned types of mini pupillages but that does mean it's much more accessible and you can have more mini pupils as a set of chambers than if you only took a mini pupil per week there's mm -hmm. a finite amount of people you can get through to see what you're doing so our set recently changed um, to doing instead of the traditional mini pupillages having essentially open evenings where there is uh, all of the information people need about our chambers is there there's an opportunity to understand more about who we are what we do we also offer we are involved in a number of placement schemes which is a bit more like the old-fashioned mini pupillages but those are things like bridging the bar and the bar council's placements which tend to be uh, more focused on people who really wouldn't normally have access to the bar and um, so we find that combination works quite well for us but it varies depending on the set of chambers so that my advice for students would be do your research and if you, if you know which chambers you're interested in start early in terms of understanding what their process is and whether you need to apply with an application form mm. for a mini pupillage, whether they do those kind of online evenings or whether there's another way that they that they operate. But mini pupillages or experience of the chambers really helps with when it comes to making applications. Fill your CV with all the opportunities you have. So, um, you know, your law school will provide a lot of opportunities for meeting and debating volunteering, pro bono work, citizens advice bureau, you know, all of the kind of opportunities that there are for law students. My strong advice, particularly if you want to go down the barrister route, is take every opportunity that you have. Um, and I think it's easy to forget how important that is when you're in the middle of studying mm. and studying law is hard and it's really all consuming. And so it's tempting to think, well, I've just got to have my head down. I've just got to do really well in my exams. And you, you do. But you also have to make sure you've got the, the extra things on your CV that come to make you stand out when you're making your pupillage applications. So that would be my advice. I suppose one last point is that the things are a lot more open and transparent than they used to be, which is fantastic. And there are a lot of sources of information out there and online. So one of my, a member of Chambers where I am, two, two members of Chambers, in fact, did a, a, something called the Pupillage podcast, which was all about getting barristers in to talk about their experiences and to try and demystify the process of pupillage applications and I suppose pupillage itself as well. And that's available on the Middle Temple website. Um, so if you Google it, it's quite easy, easy to find. But that is one source of in, sort of insider view, I suppose, into joining the profession. And there, 
we also as a set of chambers also publish every year the pupillage report and that essentially says what we think people did really well at each year what we're looking for things to avoid so it gives direct tips on how to do a good application and do a good interview so it, I think that it is easier than it used to be to mm. find out what you need to do to perform well and so it's, it goes back to the research thing research 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 yeah, brilliant. So much good information there. And like you say, there, there's so, there is so much information available, isn't there, these days, which is really positive. But I think it can be overwhelming as well sometimes for our students. So it's really good to get those recommendations from you, Emma. And what I might do, actually, is link those two resources that you said into our, our descriptor for the podcast so that it's easy for, for our students to find them. So thank you for those. Sort of listening to you talk there, it sounds like the experience and building as much experience as possible was kind of really integral to make for a good pupillage application. But also, I guess it was really important for you to confirm that the career you were pursuing was the right career. Well, absolutely. Um, As I say, the the practice of law is quite different from the study of law. And I I ended up I do areas of practice which are not the areas of practice I imagined I would necessarily be doing when I was first looking at law. Um, I started off being interested in public international law and then came Mm. to find the features of that that I enjoyed in public law and then found myself involved in inquests and inquiries. Uh, And it's only by seeing barristers doing an area of law and going with them to court and having conversations with them that you really get an understanding. So it it, it is really important to try and help yourself to choose the right path. Having said that, my advice would also be to try and keep things broad in at the beginning of practice. Mm -hmm. So in my view, it's a mistake to be too focused from the outset. So if you do get pupillage and you do get tenancy, doing a range of areas of law is a good idea while you're building your experience until you work out what you really enjoy. So it's slightly after pupillage in a way, but it's an extension of that, of doing mini pupillage and getting the experience. You know, it's thinking about keeping your options open, I suppose. Yeah, that's important as well, particularly at the outset, I guess, isn't it? So that, you know, how can you kind of make decisions if you don't know what the certain practice areas involve? And would it be okay to ask, how many times did it take you to secure pupillage? Well, for me, I got pupillage first time, which I put down to luck rather than anything else, largely because the interview that I did for the set I got pupillage with, I felt able to deal with the questions, I felt comfortable with the people asking the questions, it felt like quite a good fit, and it didn't feel terrifying or difficult. There were some interviews I did that did feel terrifying and difficult. And so um, uh, if you're doing an interview in a set that's right for you, that tends to be indicated by how comfortable in a way you feel in that interview. So I I was lucky and I did get it first time, but I know a lot of people who didn't. uh, And so I think it's really important to remember that it's quite common not to get it first time round, simply because it's very competitive. And if you've done a round of interviews one year, you are better equipped for that next year that comes. You are more likely to perform well in your second round of applications. But, you know, some people get it first time, some people don't. I think the main thing is not to think that's the end of the road. If you yeah. Don't. 
if you don't get it I guess it's the mind's difficult isn't it if you know any rejection is difficult but I guess it's that mindset like you say of all thinking about all the things that you've learned from having the opportunity to do it the first time and then how you can carry that forward to improve next time and increase your chances of success yeah that's really useful thank you you can also just thinking about other sources of support the inns of court so if you want to be a barrister you need to join an inn when you're doing your bar course year but it is possible to join an inn earlier than that and the inns of court do offer mentoring schemes and mock interviews for pupillage so it's important to remember that there are sources of help like that through the inns of court you know if you can get the opportunity to do a mock interview if you do your pupillage application and you get a range of interview offers even if you only get an offer of one interview it's a good idea to try and have a a dry run first with a barrister and the inns of court can provide that kind of uh, mock interview support Um, so that's something else to bear in mind. That's good to know and actually on that point I was going to ask you about the inns of court because of course me not I don't work in law I sort of I I read about the inns of court and I don't know it seems like a very sort of different world if you're not in it so what was your experience of choosing you know which inn to join because I know that it's your choice isn't it which inn you want to join so what was your experience like of that? Well, there are four inns of court, so Gray's Inn, which is my inn, and then there's Middle Temple and Inner Temple, and then there's Lincoln's Inn, and those are the four. So what I did was to go and have a tour with the education department of each one, and I found that Gray's Inn was the smallest and friendliest of the inns. It has that reputation, and the education department member who showed me round um, was wonderful and really friendly and really supportive, so that played a big part in my decision-making process. But I think the reality is that all of the inns are great, um, and they will provide what you need, and broadly speaking, the support that you get from them, both scholarships, and that's something that's really important to bear in mind, and interview support, mentoring, all of them will have those kind of structures in place. The scholarships that they offer can be different, so some inns will have some really, really big awards, but potentially fewer of them. Uh, Other inns might have slightly smaller awards, but more of them. And they'll have different types of awards, but almost all, I think all of the inns now have a system where how much you get on a scholarship will be affected by means. So you get a scholarship and then how much you get, you know, varies depending on uh, your means and your need. But that's a really good uh, thing to look at when you're thinking about an inn, look at what their scholarship options are. Um, and look at things that matter to you, really. But, you know, Lincoln's Inn is the biggest and grandest. But uh, you, I suppose because there are more students, I felt that a, a smaller group of students at Gray's was where I would feel more comfortable. So that, that was one of the reasons for my choice. But they are a great support. And the reality is that it's not just when you're a student. You become a member for life. And it's a bit like your professional I mean, the Bar Council is our representative body, but the inn is your sort of professional home. Mm-hmm. And it really is a support and a home because as barristers, you are self-employed. You often work on your own. You will be given a case. You draft things. You go off to court. You come back. Sometimes your solicitor will be there with you. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes you're just you know, giving an update at the end of the case and then you come back to chambers and you may see people. But it's good to have that kind of professional support and professional collegiality and 
um, mm. connection um, and you make friends you find that there are other barristers you can ask advice from in quite an informal way um, and that there are just lots of opportunities for that through the inn so I stay I, I remain quite involved in my inn so I now help the education department with advocacy training and ethics training for the students that come through and so I stayed involved from the, the time when I stopped needing to be I suppose once you've done mm. your new, pra- um, new practitioners course and you're three years in you could in theory not go back to your inn at all unless mm. you wanted to become what's called a venture which is a senior member of the inn much later but for me I, I find it very rewarding to give back but also to maintain those friendships and have that professional home so I think it's a really important thing. Yeah, that's it does sound important because I'd imagine being self-employed, like you were just explaining there, could potentially be quite isolating. So this almost sounds like it's your professional network. It is. And you have that in chambers as well, I guess. Your chambers colleagues provide that support. So you come back and bounce ideas off people. Yeah. You're not ever really on your own. But it that's is, good. you know, unlike I suppose being a solicitor in a team. You're working less as a team and more solo and um, even just notionally you know the buck stops with you ultimately when you're doing a case and standing up and arguing it which for me gives a lot of independence and it gives a, a lot of responsibility from quite a junior point um, which if you're happy with that and you're interested in that it can be a real benefit but you know, students should also be aware you are self-employed and that that can mean working on your own sometimes so it, it depends what your personality type is and how you feel about that as to whether that's a good thing for you or not. Yeah that's it, it goes back to sort of that research doesn't it that you were saying is really important and gaining that experience so you can make informed decisions about what's going to be the right fit I guess for you. Okay so so moving on now Emma would I be right in thinking you've been a barrister for 15 years? Yes that's 15 that years. right. <laughs> yeah it sounds about right so you know that's quite a you know substantial time to be in the profession I just thought you know drawing out your your sort of very experienced and it'd be useful for our students to know sort of if you could cast your mind back to those sort of early days when you were newly qualified you know what did that feel like? Well it's very exciting when you get to the point where you are able to be on your feet in court and that comes quite soon so you do a 12-month pupillage and for the first six months of that you are shadowing your pupil supervisor and uh, you're going to court with them but you're not doing your own court work and you're not taking your own work you are essentially doing a first draft of whatever they're doing or learning by osmosis by watching them in court and then you get to your second six months and all of a sudden cases start popping into your diary from the clerks and so mm. it's over to you to be going off to do court work and they tend to be quite small cases to start with and you know they they are manageable for a pupil so you're not going to be sent off to do something ridiculous from in your second six but it is quite nerve-wracking when you see that thing go in your diary and you think oh okay um and you know there's excitement if it's someone if you wear a wig and gown for the area of law you're doing for example you know you're, you're going to get to wear your wig and gown and stand up in court and do what you've been pretending to do in moots for years and it, it's very exciting but it is also a little bit nerve-wracking and the reality is that the anticipation of it is far worse than actually when you get up and get mm. on with it. I think I said about six words in my first case in court and then it was over. And then I was like, oh, well, thank goodness for that. And it was it was great to have almost got it done. Um, but it is um, a little bit nerve wracking when you first start doing it. And then if it's for you and you enjoy court work, it, you know, it becomes really fun. 
and and you know doing the paperwork as well it's your opportunity to think about a case and advise in writing and um, so depending on which areas of law you choose you might be doing more court work or more written work but it is an opportunity to do, do some of your own work in your second six months so you don't do that all the time you still have a pupil supervisor and you help them with their work but there's space in your diary to do some of your own work and then if all goes well with your pupillage you're taken on as a tenant in chambers and you become a self-employed member of chambers and what that means just in case your students don't already know is that in a set of chambers you you share the costs of running chambers so the building the brand name uh, the staff the clerks the heating all of those things mm-hmm. don't share profits so the way it works is that you if you, you you work you earn and then you pay a percentage of a, your earnings towards the upkeep of chambers and mm. different structures but that's basically the principle of how it works so yeah that, that that's the sort of journey into chambers but I suppose in terms of the how I felt about being newly qualified one of the things that's really fun is that at the end of your pupillage, you start as a tenant having this independence to, you obviously really do what your clerks put in your diary for the first couple of years. Um, But you go off and do that independently. So you get your papers, you prep your case, you get on a train to probably a slightly obscure part of the country that you've never been to before, to a county court or a court that's in the middle of nowhere. And you do your case and you meet your opponent. And quite often in the junior years, you'll be herring off all over the country and seeing uh, the same sort of people who are also doing pupillage at the same time or early years as tenants and you get the train back together and you tend to uh, make friends with people and the whole thing is quite exciting and quite fun and you're learning so much so it's a bit of a steep learning curve in the mm. first few years but it is quite often uh, going off to courts all over the country doing different small matters every day but you might also be working with someone more senior in chambers on a bigger case as their junior And that happens in the first few years and it carries on. And as a junior, you continue to be led really most of the time until you become a KC. And so the first few years are quite fun and you you learn your trade. You meet other people who are doing the same thing and you you get used to this uh, wonderful but slightly odd profession. Yeah, that is. it sounds very busy, but I'm sure... The kind of excitement carries you through, I would imagine, like you said, lots of traveling around and, you know, meeting, meeting other people who are doing sort of the same job. And like you said, the the anxiety of being in court the first few times, but then realizing that I've done it and I survived, <laughs> you know, all, all of those sorts of things. So that that's really interesting to hear. And, and you sort of you've touched on being self-employed a few times. And I just wondered if you could tell us about, you know, what that actually means in reality, you know, being self-employed, I guess. And I guess within that, there are some ups and there are probably some downs as well. So I wonder if you could just sort of explain your experiences of that to our students. I suppose in, in practical terms, that means that you do your own tax returns. So you do a self-assessment. Most barristers have an accountant. And when you first qualify, Chambers will normally recommend a firm that deal with barristers. And it is not break the bank, certainly not in the first few years to have one. And it's a very, it's recommended to have one because it gives you an element of protection in terms of your tax returns. A lot of accountants firms will specialise in doing barristers accounts and so you essentially send your expenses from your train tickets and things and a printout of your chambers earnings and the accountant plugs all of that into your tax return and sends it off 
But in practical terms, what that means is that your money doesn't get deducted at source in terms of the tax. So mm. you uh, have to plan for your tax bills, which come in January and July each year. So when you're paid, you have to remember to save a certain amount so that you can mm. pay your tax bills. So as a practical point, that's that you need to be fairly organised and you need to be able to be quite responsible with your finances in order to make sure that that's all the money's there when you need it but that's um all something that's never really caused me too much of a problem in terms of the upsides of being self-employed it gives you a lot of flexibility that you wouldn't have in an employed role so technically speaking if at five years in you decide you want to have six months off and go and travel the world then mm-hmm. the parks might not be thrilled that's your decision and you can go and do that if you decide that you tend to work better in the evenings rather than, you know, in the mornings, and I don't, but some people do, provided you're not in court, you can do your work when you choose to. Mm-hmm. And it, that can be helpful uh, later on when you have, well, for me, I have two young children. And so being self-employed, whilst there is a downside to that in that no one pays you maternity leave when you stop working to go and have a baby, Chambers does stop charging you rent at least. But the upside is that when you come back, you can be more flexible than a normal nine to five job uh, and you don't have to physically be in the building. You can work where you want to work. You, if you need to leave, you know, at 4.30 because pickup happens, you know, early one day or for some people it's even earlier than that. But um, if you need to leave early to go and do pickup and then put the kids to bed and then get out your laptop and finish something off later, you can do that and no one will mind. So there is an element of flexibility that comes with being self-employed, which I really enjoy. It also means you have more control over the fate of your practice. You can express an interest in it going one direction rather than another. And I want to do more of this area of law rather than that. Um, And discussions with your clerks can help you shape where you want to go. But as a self-employed individual focusing on your own practice, you get to have a lot more choice than you would if you were part of a firm of solicitors, for example, where the collective good of the firm and you know, the direction the firm wants to take might, might be more, you know, what the considerations are. And um, so there's a lot of flexibility and control that comes with being self-employed. The downside is, as and I've touched on it, you, you know, no one pays you if you're not well and can't work. And no one pays you if you go off on maternity leave or parental leave or carer leave. And you are entitled to maternity allowance. So you do get paid something from the government. But if you can't work for any reason, for example, you you don't earn. And so that is just something to be aware of as being self-employed. But the upside to that is if you decide you need to be earning more because you want to be saving for something. And for me, I needed to save ahead of my two periods of parental leave. Then you can increase your hours and say, I want to do another couple of sets of papers a week. Mm. Or I'm going to put in just an hour or two in the evenings doing the less taxing things, Mm. uh, you know, that I want to be doing to up my income for, you know, however many months. So it gives you financial flexibility as well. Mm. Um, You know, it goes both ways. There are upsides and downsides, I think, of being being self-employed. Yeah, and it sounds like you say you can you can plan, you know, like you said when you were you knew you were thinking about taking parental leave. So you can plan for those times where you might not be working and you might not be receiving that income. So that that's really interesting to hear. And you said there you've got two two small children. And and that's something I wanted to ask about 
about I guess your experiences of taking time out to have a family because I know that that's something that some of our students will be thinking ahead to the future and they'll want to have children but I would imagine they've probably got concerns about how they, they'll manage, you know, having a family with a really demanding career. Because being a barrister is, you know, it's a, a big position of responsibility. It's a demanding career. You know, how have your experiences been of sort of taking time out to have a family and then, you know, returning to, to your career? I think there are challenges and I don't think they're specific to being a barrister. I think that any demanding job mm. it is a bit of a juggle once you have children. Having the time off the parental leave stage um, certainly wasn't a problem for me. You know, I saved for, for that so that I could financially afford to do it. I didn't take a whole year. I did, in fact, share the time with my husband. So um, because he was employed as a teacher at the time, we did shared parental leave. So I took for my firstborn son, um, I had seven months off and then he did the rest of the year and that was arranged through his work. And then the second time round, I took six months off, which was perhaps slightly less than I wanted to, but for parents, mm. that's how it, how it worked out. And then my husband, again, did the rest of the year. So that worked fine. And in terms of chambers, you tell them that you're going and most chambers have a, a parental and carer leave policy now which will mean that there is provision to give you support both before you go and when you come back mm. and you don't pay chambers rent for the period of time you're off. Our chambers, in fact, has a policy whereby you don't pay chambers rent for a period of time after you come back, which helps to mitigate the financial losses that you have when you're off, which is, in fact, quite progressive uh, for self-employed barristers' sets of chambers. So the time off itself is not a huge problem. Um, you come back and you worry that everyone will have forgotten who you are and, and mm. your solicitors will all have disappeared. It does not happen. The reality is that time goes in a flash for all of us. And so it doesn't seem like very long to other people that you've been away for and they do remember you and the work comes back in your diary very quickly and your clerks can help with that. The difficulty is that it, it is a demanding job. So when you've got small people at home that you want to be seeing and putting to bed, it can be a bit of a juggle. But with the right support from your clerks, it is all perfectly possible. It is tricky when your children wake up three times in the night and you've got to be in court the next day. There's no getting mm -hmm. away. But that's not specific to being a barrister. Any profession that you go into, once you mm -hmm. go back to work and you have small children, you get less sleep than you used to and you have to adapt and you do. And it is possible. Um, but it's about having a supportive environment so you know chambers are much better than they used to be at supporting mm. women or men or those going off uh, you know with caring responsibilities and um, on their return and understanding that uh, if we want to retain women at the bar and if we want them to progress to become KCs and to become judges because it does disproportionately affect women the of course the childcare aspect of it then we need to be supportive and we need to have open and honest conversations about the challenges that exist so that you can find ways of mitigating them. So I think that the bar has come on in leaps and bounds in the last even 10 years and mm -hmm. um, thinking and being more aware um, of uh, the challenges that come with juggling a family life and being a barrister. There's also a greater consciousness that work-life balance is a valid goal that um, yeah. we should be striving and just because you're a barrister doesn't mean you don't have the right to believe that having a work-life balance is both possible and desirable. So things are uh, have improved hugely.
talking about um you know our set of chambers for example it's probably demonstrative of how things have improved that out of our um as of whenever the newest uh, kc becomes technically a kc which is in a month's time and um, mm. we will have four out of our five kcs in chambers women and of those women all but one have children and mm. have juggled you know throughout their career and have managed to become kcs nonetheless and they will go on to succeed and the the women beneath them and the men beneath them the chambers you know are doing brilliantly um, and the future is very positive so I think that's just indicative of the fact that it is possible mm-hmm. to, to do the juggle. And I think the, the myth to correct is that you cannot be a successful barrister and be a good parent. That is simply not true, or at least I hope it's not true. My, you know, I, I, I see my children a lot. I work hard, but I do it in a, a way that works for us as a family. And my 19-month-old and my four-and-a-half-year-old are a huge part of my life. And I'm very open about that with my colleagues in chambers and with the profession more widely. So if I can't make a conference at six o'clock because I want to put them to bed, then I will say I can't do a conference at six o'clock because I put my children to bed. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't hide that. And I think in the past people did and would say I can't do that for professional reasons. And I think the more we're open and upfront about the fact that we want to be involved in our children's lives, and that mm. means that we have some boundaries on when we want to work, the better. Yeah, and it's great to hear that you feel you can be honest and say, no, I can't do that conference call at six o'clock because I want to put my children to bed. So it would be hard to not be able to say the real reason, wouldn't it? You know, it's it's all, that sounds that sounds reassuring that there is a work-life balance, and I'm sure it will be important for our students to hear that from you, you know, with your experience as somebody who's been through that. So I think we're, we're sort of drawing to the end now, Emma, but I just wondered before we close, is there sort of anything that I haven't asked you, which you think is, you know, important to comment on? There might not be, but I just thought I, I'd ask before we finish. Well, I suppose I'd just say that I think, and I, I know this, I'm just one person, but I think this is the best job in the world. And I really wouldn't do anything else. It is so rewarding. It is, you know, intellectually challenging. You meet a huge range of people and you do a whole range of cases covering a myriad of different issues. Um, And I don't, I can't think of many professions where you would have the the opportunities to have those experiences. And so for me, you know, I I would wholeheartedly recommend the bar uh, to your students. Oh, that's that's brilliant. And that's actually really inspirational to hear. So thank you for that. And thank you for your time this morning joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was the Career Zone podcast brought to you by the University of Exeter Career Zone. Check out iTunes and Spotify to keep up with all of our regular releases. And if you'd like us to cover something else in another episode, just send us a message. Hashtag Career Zone podcast at UOE Career Zone or at UOE Cornwall Career Zone on Instagram and we'll follow up in one of the next episodes.